And uh, we're going to read just three verses from John chapter 17. Begin reading in verse number 21. Jesus prayed. Now remember, he's getting ready to go to the cross. So if you wonder what was in the heart and mind of Jesus, right as soon as he was getting ready to go to the cross, this was his last prayer. He says that they may all be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23 says, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that thou hast sent me and thou hast, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. I want to talk to you tonight for just a few minutes on this title, Make Us One. This, this message came to me many months ago. Anybody remember that old 1980s Phil Disco song, Make Us One? Am I the only person that knows that? Sister Lynn knows it. Sister Lori knows it. If you're, Sister Michelle knows it. Like three or four of us know that song. Keith knows it. That was a good song. And, uh, you know, it's whenever the Lord speaks to you about something, you know, sometimes it comes through revelation, and then other times it comes from a song that gets stuck in your head. And, uh, and so I, I promised, I practically have had that song on repeat on, on my YouTube channel. It's, it, it's on YouTube. Everything's on YouTube. Um, but you know, the Lord just really laid this on my heart. But let me, let me just start out by saying this. Unity stems out of love. And love, according to Bible, the, according to the New Testament, is the mark of perfection. Now, when I say perfection, I don't mean that you never mess up, you never make a mistake, but it means that there is a full age of spiritual maturity that we should all be striving to reach tonight. And if you're not striving, actively striving to reach that, then you're probably going backwards. And that is never a good thing. But Colossians 3 says this, And above all things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Love is the mark of a perfect Christian. And again, when we say perfect, we mean a full age of spiritual maturity. That's, that's, that's the goal here tonight. But God can do nothing with a body that is not unified. I think we know that. Unity was, was required in the very beginning uh, with, with Adam and Eve, and they too shall be one flesh. Then you get to the New Testament, and it says when they were in one accord, in one place, when they were in and of the same mindset, amen, then unity occurs. And unity happens not just when we all kind of like each other and, and when nobody has any divisions, but unity occurs when we're all of the same mindset. So we can be in a church setting, for example, and somebody over here has their mind on maybe where they're going to eat at after church. And somebody over here is thinking about those homemade cookies that your wife made for you. Somebody back there is worried about what's going to happen on their job tomorrow. And, and even though we're not in a state of disunity as far as I don't like you or, or I've got an issue with you, yet we're not unified in the same purpose because we're not all in the same mindset. And so when, when any church reaches 
reaches a place, even in, in, a, in a local church, where we are in the same mindset, all of us. Great things do happen. And that's why it's so important that we come expecting God to do great things every single service. Because we're apostolic, right? Anything can happen on a Wednesday night. Anything can happen on a Sunday morning. And it doesn't matter when we meet. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So where at least two or three are not only gathered in his name, but when they're in the same mindset. Amen. And that's, that's why we have worship to kind of get us all, you know, reined in. Psalms 133 verse 1 says this, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments. There is a great anointing in unity. There is a barrier the enemy cannot break, the bond of love in unity. Anybody remember that, that again, probably showing my age now, there was a game we used to play when I was in grade school called Red Rover. Anybody know what that game is? Red Rover, Red Rover, send somebody right over. And we'd hold hands as tight as we could. And somebody would run as, as fast as they could and try to break that bond. And, you know, I know that's kind of a silly example, but that's kind of what, what, what's happening here in this hour. We are seeing our country torn in half. And, you know, in, in case that comes as a revelation to you, it, it shouldn't. It's, it, I know it's not, but it's been happening for decades now. It's not just a new thing. You know, the, 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 you know, the enemy hates unity. I mean, it's true not just in the spirit world. It's true uh, even of a local secular sports team. If you've got problems or disunity from within that team, if members of that team don't like each other, it will grasply, grasply, now making up words, it will deeply impact their effectiveness, whether it's on the court or on the football field or whatever it is. But there is anointing in unity. We need each other more than we will ever realize. As a part of your body, when separated from the others, cannot survive. If you cut off a finger that, or a toe, that finger or that toe will die. 1 Corinthians 12 says this, But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they all many members, yet but one body. There is only one body tonight. There's a church in Blue Springs. There's a church in various parts of Kansas City. But yet there's only one body. There's a whole lot of local congregations, but there's only one body. There's, uh, there's apostolic churches scattered all over Africa and China and Asia and Europe, but yet there's only one body and only one way to be baptized into that body, and that's of the water and of the Spirit, according to God's Word. But it is God's perfect will that His body grow and be healthy, a healthy body naturally grows. An unhealthy body is naturally stymied in its growth. It cannot do the will of God because it's not healthy. It's kind of like this, that an unhealthy mom or lady cannot generally expect to produce healthy kids if she were to get pregnant, for example, then her own life is at risk, not to mention the life of her child. 
We are his body. Colossians 4 and 6 says this, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Ephesians 4 and 29 says basically the same thing. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Say, oh me, or amen. I can say amen and then oh me followed very quickly after that. But that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Let me ask you this, just you know, rhetorically speaking, are the words that you've spoken this week, have they ministered grace unto those that were hearing your words? But this verse means that I won't hurl words at you, I won't talk about you behind your back or in front of you, unless it's good. My speech will be always with grace and seasoned with salt, because you're my brother and you're my sister in the Lord. And so first of all tonight, let me tell you this. How much we love each other is a measure of how much we love God. How much we love each other and the depth of that is a measure of how much we love God. First John 4 and 20 says this. If a man say, I love God and hate his brother, he is a liar. Don't you love it the way the Bible says it? For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath Seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? In the Old Testament, the law of Moses taught us one of the basic Ten Commandments is do not murder. Now, if you look at all of the Ten Commandments, every single one of them are repeated in the New Testament. And not only are they repeated, but, uh, but they're strengthened. In other words, they get tighter, they get more stricter. In the New Testament, okay? And this is a perfect example of this. In the Old Testament, it was don't murder your brother. But the New Testament equivalent to that law is do not hate your brother. First John 3 and 15 says this. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Thus, the, under the New Testament law of faith, hating your brother is murder. It's the Old Testament equivalent to going out and putting a knife in their back and ending their life. Because many times that's what happens whenever, you know, more people have backslid because somebody offended them in the church than any other reason why. More people backslide over that than, as we used to say, wine, women, and song. That just, you know, takes them out into the world. More people backslide and stumble over that than any other reason. And so whenever we hate our brother, we become a murderer. Hate in front of the Greek means to detest. As in, I cannot stand that person. Then you're filled with hate. Love has no qualifications. Love doesn't mean I love you because you treat me right. Love doesn't mean I love you because we get along. Because if only we love the people that we get along with, then really we're no different than the world. Matter of fact, we're just like them. But the true test of our Christianity is to love people that get underneath our skin. Now, you're perfect, so you don't have that problem like me, people that get under your skin and just rub you the wrong way. And you, you probably never fight thoughts of, man, I'm like to, in Jesus' name. <laughs> you know, 
at Bible school you know, years ago, the running joke was, we don't get angry at people, we get righteously indignated. It's kind of a spiritual way of saying, I'm angry at you, righteously indignated. But remember that love has no qualifications. Just as God loves us, so ought we to love our brother. Because in this season, there are many reasons to split us up, but we are his body. We need to pray in this hour for a godly love for the body of Christ. Because people backslide when they start seeing all that's wrong with the body. And bitterness sets in. When we got our eyes on man and not on Jesus Christ. And I love our pastor and I think he's about as perfect man as you can find. Although if he was here right now, he would be shaking his head. No, it's not right. But let me tell you this. You know, even, even pastors have faults and failures sometimes. And, 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 and so I know Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. We look to our leaders as an example. But ultimately, our eyes are on Jesus. We don't expect perfection. We don't love people because they're perfect or because we like them. We love them because God commanded us to love them. And you don't have the Holy Ghost if you don't love your brother. Because the first thing that God does when he fills you with his spirit is he puts a love for people in your heart. Remember the night you got the Holy Ghost? You wanted to hug everybody. No matter who it was, even if it wasn't inappropriate, you, you know, if they were in your way, you wanted to hug them in Jesus' name. Just because love was overflowing in your heart. That's what God does when we're filled with the Spirit. And let me tell you, the church is not perfect, but it's still His body. You've got to fall in love with the body of Christ. You cannot serve God Apart from his body, scripturally, it is impossible. Just as I said, you cannot cut off a member of your body and expect it to survive. Well, me and Jesus, we got our own thing going. No, you don't. You cannot survive spiritually without being connected to the local church. Amen. Amen. Look with me, for example, to Balaam as a really good example. Balaam wanted to get paid to curse God's people Israel. Matter of fact, he went and he basically asked God after, after the king of Moab came and said, Balaam, I'm going to give you a bunch of silver and gold. You can have your choice of wives and, 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 and I'm going to put all this honor on you if you'll just curse Israel. Now, Balaam did have a prophetic ministry, but because of this failure, he showed himself to be a false prophet, not a true prophet. But yet his accuracy, his, his prophecies were extremely accurate. And God, God told Balaam, I don't want you to, to bless Israel. I, want you to, I don't want you to curse them. I want you to bless them. And look at what God said of his people to Balaam. Numbers 23 and 21 says this. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him and the shout of a king is among them. That means the shout of victory is there. Among them. Now, as far as we could tell, this wasn't exactly true. Because this was the same group of people that were wandering around in the wilderness for 38 extra years. Why? Because of their unbelief. They came to the promised land and they said, No, 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 we're just grasshoppers. We can't overtake Canaan. 
God said, yes, you can. Moses said, God is with you. Joshua and Caleb came back with a good report. The other ten spies said, no, we can't. We're just a bunch of grasshoppers. We can't do it. They mumbled and they grumbled and they complained. And they said, it would have been better had we been left in Egypt. And so God said, okay, I'll just let you wander around for 38 years until that whole generation dies. This was the same group of people that just prior to this had the earth open up and swallow some of them because of their rebellion with Korah. It was the same group of people who built the golden calf and committed idolatry with it right after they had crossed over through the Red Sea. Same group who grumbled and complained and caused a plague to come down from God and kill thousands of people. And yet God said, I don't find any fault with my people. So you're not allowed to curse them. How could this be? Because God forgives, unlike us. Balaam's problem was he knew all the dirt on Israel, but God saw them as unblemished. And when was the last time, let me ask you this, when was the last time you saw your brothers and sisters like that unblemished before God? Not as people with faults and failures and shortcomings, but see them as God sees them through the blood. They're unblemished because they're in Christ. Love looks past our faults, just like God does for us. Love for each other and the joy of the Lord are interchangeably connected. And let me tell you, nothing will kill the joy of the Lord in your life like getting angry and not forgiving your brother or sister. Nothing will seep the joy out of your spirit and the bounce in your step and the victory out of your heart like holding a grudge against your brother. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that you are giving a place to the devil whenever you hold the grudge. In another place, Paul said, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. And, you know, we've all gone to bed angry <laughs> before. Uh, maybe you have. At least I have, okay? And sometimes you just need to sleep it off. But I think what that verse means, and if you disagree, I've been wrong before. But I think what that verse means is don't, don't let things fester and simmer in your spirit very long. Be quick to forgive. Amen. So we need the oil of gladness mingled with our worship. In the Old Testament, certain, certain meat offerings had to be mixed with oil. And you get to the New Testament, and Paul talked about the oil of gladness in the book of Hebrews chapter 1. And so I believe that the joy of the Lord is what gives you that oil of gladness, that gladness in your worship, that bounce in your step. But you can't have the joy if you're angry or mad or jealous at your brother. I believe the joy of the Lord is what brings the oil of gladness. Hebrews 12 and 14 says it like this, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man will see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Now, I don't got time tonight to go through the story of Jacob and Esau. I think you know that story. But in the same breath as, as he spoke about holiness, follow peace and, and, and be holy, he also talked about following peace with all men and guarding ourselves against bitterness. Because bitterness can cause you to fail the grace of God. And it leads to an immoral spirit like Esau. 
had. Esau did not start off as an immoral man. But he started off as a bitter man. And bitterness left, let, left the door open to other things that came into his life. And when he left that door open long enough and didn't forgive, then it led to an immoral lifestyle. And that's why he ends this little portion by saying, lest there be any fornicator or profane person. In other words, if you let bitterness fester long enough, it's going to lead to you being a profane person and a spirit of immorality. And that's, you know, we talk about, you know, men that have had moral failures, and not just men, but women too, not just in the ministry, but in and out of the ministry. Many times it started not with lust, but it started with bitterness. And it left the door open to other things. And not only that, not only that spirit, but other spirits, you are literally leaving the door wide open. We must forgive tonight. We need to keep record of each other's wrongs in the same way that God keeps record of ours. Look at Revelation 20 and verse 12. It says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged that of those things which were written in, their, in the books according to their works. Now, there's been a lot of thought and commentary on this verse. But let me just point out the obvious. It doesn't just say book was opened. It says books. So at least we know that there are at least two books, right? Because that would make it plural. One we know is the Lamb's Book of Life. You better make sure your name is there. Somebody say amen. And the other is the book of your life. Yes, there is an accurate record. Think of it like this. We are writing our own story. And God is keeping track. We have the pen to this book. Every day you write a page in that book. Every action, every deed is recorded there. And God is keeping track. Each chapter, each page, is, each sentence is written by our own hands, by our own deeds, our own actions, our own words. Except for when we are saved and God forgives us. And the record of each wrong we've ever done is wiped clean. I hope if you don't get anything else, I hope you get a revelation of what I am telling you right now. That when you are saved, and all of those past chapters of all the things that you did before you went down in the waters of baptism and before God filled you with His Spirit, all those things, all those chapters that you relive, what God does is He rips those pages out and it's not even recorded. The story is literally rewritten. The Bible calls that justification. That's, you know, in Bible school they taught us justification is just a $10 word. It means just as if it had never happened. It never happened, according to God. And that's how God forgives. But I believe there's another book. I think that there's another book. And it's not just a book it's not just the Lamb's book of life, and it's not just the book of our life, but it's the book that we write about others. We write a book on others' actions and accounts as well. And my, oh my, do we ever keep an accurate record. And from time to time, we like to get that book down off the shelf and reread some of those chapters and get good and angry about it. Kind of, you know, 
meditate upon it, think about it, what they did. It's like getting down that book, opening it to page, you know, chapter 12, page 12, page 264. We got it highlighted in yellow and red, notes on the side. Look at what they did. Look at how they treated me. And we're writing a book about others. And let me tell you tonight that just as God rewrites our book, we need to rewrite the book that we've written about those that have wronged us. Some of us need to rewrite the story on some others who have wronged us. You may say, well, you don't know what they did to me or how they hurt me. But let me tell you this. Being wounded is inevitable, but being offended is a choice. Now, it's, it's without any question, you will be wounded. Uh, it's true because not just in the church, but out of the church. And no matter where you go, you're going to get hurt. People are going to hurt you. And you might say, well, it shouldn't happen in the church. I agree. But you know what? It does. And that's the reality of the situation. That's, that goes back to what I said, that the church isn't perfect, but it's still his body. And so we're writing a book about others. And, 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 and you will get wounded. But being offended is, is allowing the enemy to come and sit at your table. To sit in your mind and fill your mind with the thoughts of all the people that have wronged you. You know, there's a story in the parable of the workers in the field. And you know the story Jesus told. There were some workers. You know, a man went out and he was looking for workers in his field. He went at first watch of the day. That was right about when the sun was coming up. I don't know what time that was. Let's say it's 4.30 in the morning. And, and he hired laborers for a penny or, or whatever it was. And he went out a few hours later and he, said, he saw some more standing out on the marketplace. And he hired them for the same wage. And he did that at various portions throughout the day until finally it came to the very last watch of the day. There was only about an hour left. And he went back to that marketplace and he saw that there were still some standing idle looking for work. And he hired them. And when it came time for payment, the ones that had been working in the heat of the day got offended because they got the same amount as the ones who had came in with only an hour left and who had not borne the heat of the day. And, you know, you know, the point of that parable was, that's grace. That's what grace does. Your life story, as written by God, is written just like that. The grace and the forgiveness of God that you did not deserve. Because here's the other side of that coin. That man that went into that marketplace could have left those early in the morning. He could have left them standing idle. He didn't have to choose them at all. He could have started working on his own. There were probably others that were standing idle that he could have hired. And you know, we've been saved by grace through faith. None of us deserve to be here. But yet, here we are. So your life story, as written by God, is written without any errors or any mistakes or any sins committed. When was the last time we took that book that we've been written, that we've been writing about others, and just tore it up and threw it in the fire and say, God, we're giving it to you. It's as if it never happened. And that's what we need to do with people. And you see, when we forgive, God does the greater work in us. Because while we're forgiving... And while we're laying it out before the Lord in prayer and our hearts begin to be poured out before God and we begin to tell God, 
you know, about the, about the wounds and about the hurts and the things that happen to us. And God begins to come over us and touch us. And we start to, you know, feel tears rolling down our cheeks. And we lift our hands and, and we feel the presence of God. While we're forgiving, God is reaching deep down and plucking things up that were planted by the enemy. Things that are in our hearts, bad spirits, sins, reversing generational curses. From Ecclesiastes 3 and 1. The wise man said this, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. Whenever people wounded you and hurt you, things were planted in your spirit. There was a seed that was left there by the enemy. And whenever you don't quickly get rid of it, that seed takes root and it grows deep in your spirit. And if you're not careful, that, that seed of that root of bitterness can lead to immorality and to other sins that can enter your life. And now before you know it, you've got a whole garden full of, of problems uh, and addictions and issues and things. And it's one thing on top of another, but it started with the seed of bitterness that you didn't quickly plant up. There were things planted in you. When you were wounded and offended. But when you forgive, God plucks up that which was planted and restores you brand new. And that's why a lot of times people that have addictions and problems and things that they can't get rid of, the problem is not always, but the problem is right here in this verse right here. That there is a time to, to pluck up, there is a time to plant, and there is a time to pluck up that which was planted. In other words, there was a time when the enemy and when people planted things in your life, and, you, and for whatever reason you couldn't or didn't get rid of it, and it, it kind of grew into other things, but now God is saying, you know what, I'm getting ready to... To pluck up that which the enemy has planted in your life. I'm getting ready to take up root. I'm getting ready to take it by the root and jerk it out. And not only that, but every sin that's ever been as a result of that, I'm going to pluck up that which was planted. And restore. Like Joseph, he was a dreamer. And his brothers hated him for it. The favorite son of his father's old age. He got the coat that nobody else had. He was just a dreamer at that point. A spoiled kid, but with a dream from God. Let me point out something to you that the Lord showed me. And that was this, that whenever God gave Joseph that dream, Joseph himself, if he did understand it, there's no record that he understood. Joseph himself likely did not fully understand the ramifications and the interpretation of that dream. That means that at that point in Joseph's life, as a young uh, 15 or 17-year-old kid, he was not spiritually gifted at that point. He just had a dream. Until his brothers wounded him deeply and threw him in that pit and sold him into Egypt, as a slave. And somewhere along the line, you know that story, somewhere along the line, Joseph found it in his heart to forgive his brothers. And there is no record of Joseph ever interpreting a dream until he was thrown in prison and forgotten. And at some point, God planted the seed of of the ability to interpret dreams into his spirit. Because whenever that baker and that butler came, and one was 
one we ended up going back and having his head you know lifted up and and promoted and one had his head lifted up off of his shoulders and ended up getting his head chopped off uh and so you know the story of that, but then he was forgotten for about two or three more years. He was just a dreamer until God put into him that gift. And Joseph was not ready to rule Egypt until he was wounded and forgave his brothers. And let me tell you this, you are not ready to move into what God has for you to receive from the Lord the spiritual gifts that you need until you forgive. God cannot plant seed into you until he first plucks up that which is planted. He's got to take up some, some things that were then growing there by its roots for a long, long time. And when God plucks up, he does plant. He plants seeds, seeds of deep spiritual gifts that you could not and were not ready to receive up until that point. I saw this on the news just in the past week, and, and I, I kind of kind of wrote it down, but this is a true story. In 2007, a bowhead whale, which in case you're not familiar with those, they can live over 200 years. But there was a bowhead whale that was discovered with the end of a harpoon left embedded in its neck from a previous hunt. This was in the year 2007. It was found that the harpoon tip was originally manufactured in 1890 indicating that the whale had survived a human attack well over 100 years ago, but just learned how to live with the pain of a harpoon embedded in its neck. For well over 100 years, over more than, we don't know how old the whale was, but at least well over half of its life, if, if those whales lived 200 years, or uh, about 200 years, then, then the whale's life would have been well over, halfway over. And let me tell you this, that just as that whale swam around with the end of a harpoon left embedded in its neck by somebody well over 100 years ago, when that whale learned how to survive. And let me tell you, a lot of people are just like that. They're hurt, they're wounded, you know, sometimes in their childhood or sometimes, you know, years or generations earlier. And they, and they survive just out of force of sheer will i got to survive, and they get stronger and stronger in their flesh, and their skin gets thicker and thicker, but deep down, there's a harpoon. There's, a, there's the remnants of an old wound that's still sticking in you, and you kind of walk around and do your best, but you've still got that wound. When you think about it, it still angers you. It still gets you angry, and whether you realize it or not, other things have seeped in and sat at your table because of this wounded spirit. And many have lived with the wounds of people who have hurt them. You have survived, but you have not thrived. You kind of, you know, been, been batted around, been beaten and torn up, but it's not really been a life of victory like you've read about in Scripture. It's not really been, you know, that overcoming joyous life that, that you read about in the Bible and like it seems others have had, and the reason is that the enemy planted some seeds into your life that grew into other things, and you didn't get rid of them. Maybe you couldn't get rid of them, and so you just kind of learned to survive. But let me tell you this, God does not want you just to be a survivor. He wants you to be a thriver. 
He's ready to take the harpoon out and release you from the ugliness of those old wounds. And when he does, he's going to plant seeds, uh, amen, seeds that you'll need to move into your next level of ministry. This will be a healing moment for somebody tonight if you let it go. And lastly, lastly, the Lord showed me this, words are curses. You know, I heard a preacher say once, one time, and he was, he was referencing uh, how sometimes a mom or a dad can, you know, can like, you know, tell their kids, you're, you're dumb, you're stupid, you know, you're going to end up in jail. And, 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 and sometimes, I don't know, maybe they say that to try to motivate their kids. We have never said that to our kids. I hope you never said that. But, but this, this particular preacher said this, that, that words like that are prophetic words. You are literally prophesying over your kids. But the Lord showed me a step further just a few mornings ago, and he woke me up early in the morning, the wee hours of the morning. It was about 3 o'clock on a Tuesday morning. And the Lord showed me this, and this is what the Lord said. Words are not just prophetic words. They are curses. And they come in the spirit of witchcraft. And there are curses, you know, because words can wound deeply, and just as a witch can curse you, so words from a father or a mother can be like curses, and they can stick with you for life. Evil curses that you pronounce over your kids that they will live up to. You know, they're not just prophecies. They're curses that come in the spirit of witchcraft. But the worst curse of all is not the curse that our mom or a dad may have told us. But the worst curse of all is the one that we pronounce over ourselves. I'm too fat, I'm too skinny, I'm too thin, I'm too weak, I'm too ugly, I'm too short, I'm too tall, I'm not smart enough, I'm not, I'm not pretty enough, I need to be like that person on the cover of Cosmopolitan or Teen Beauty or whatever. And you know what, those are curses. The Bible says that they're curses in the book of James. In more than one place it references words as being curses. Let me tell you this, you know, to... To be over simple, God doesn't make any junk. God did not make you ugly. He didn't make you too short or too skinny or too whatever. You are exactly the way God designed you. You were designed by an architect that designed the universe. And nobody has the right to say you ought to look like this and you ought to dress like this and you ought to do this and look this way. That's what the world wants to do. The world wants to paint it that way. But a woman that fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Beauty is not just skin deep. We need to reverse some curses tonight with a blessing that we pronounce over ourselves. In conclusion, as the musicians come, from number 6 and verse 23, the Bible says this. Speak unto Aaron and unto his son, saying, On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious Unto you. They made it into a song, but it's more than a song. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. You understand as we stand tonight that this was written to a group of slaves who had been slaves in Egypt 
for 10 long generations for over 400 years and they had had a, a, a slave mindset so many times in the wilderness they were saying man we ought to go back to Egypt you know it would have been better had we stayed there what they were saying was that lifestyle is easier than a walk of faith but let me tell you this God wanted Israel to know even though you've messed up even though you're wandering around in the wilderness I am still going to bless you my hand has not left you I'm going to provide for you I'm going to send you manna from heaven. Your shoes are not going to wax old. Amen. The clothes on your back is not going to wax old. The Lord is going to bless you. His face is going to shine upon you. He's going to be gracious unto you. And now we're at the eve of what probably is the most important election in the history of this country. And we don't know what lies around the corner. And we don't know what tragedies might happen. Even now as I'm speaking, there's yet another hurricane that's building up in the Gulf. You may have heard that. God knows whatever else is going to happen. We might see a stock market crash. We might see something far more bigger than that. I don't know, but I do know this, that whatever it is that's lying around the corner, God is going to be gracious to us. His countenance is not going to not shine on us. He's going to give us peace. Amen. When the world has turmoil, there will be peace in the church. So quit cursing yourself. Quit getting up in the morning and looking yourself in the mirror and listening to the voice of the enemy that says, I'm not big enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm just a grasshopper. I curse that spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. The only thing that can reverse a curse is a blessing from God. You know what? So I think we need to just bless ourselves tonight. Amen. I think we just need to lay our hands on our own foreheads and say, you know what? The favor of God is going to come upon me. I'm going to walk in victory. I'm going to not walk in defeat. I'm not going to accept the defeatist mindset. I don't know. 2021 might be worse than 2020. It might be better than we ever have expected. I don't know what lies around the corner, but I know this. He said, I'm going to hide you in the shadow of my and nothing is going to harm you there. I refuse to walk in fear because we are a blessed people. We are a blessed people. Lift your hands right now to the Lord. Amen. Come on. I just want you to really, I want you to really believe the words from number six. The Lord bless you. The Lord is going to keep you. 38 years in the wilderness, what are we going to eat? Well, manna falls from heaven. 38 years in the wilderness, we don't have shoes. Oh, we don't have leather to make shoes. Uh, and, and, and as we grow older, how did that happen? How did the shoes fit them? And they were 15 and they were 65 or 50. How did the shoes still fit them? That's the miraculous power of the keeping God. He's able to keep that which is committed unto him. Amen. If we need money, he can pull it out of a fish's mouth. Amen. We serve a God that is never here is never out of miracles and he is not subject amen to some king or a president or a congressman or a congresswoman or a senator. We serve a God that is able to do exceeding and abundantly above all that we ask or think. And the world might be out of resources but God never is. 
So I bless you in the name of Jesus Christ. I bless this church right now. Amen. We're going to grow. God's going to provide for us financially. He's going to rain down victory and joy, and people will be born again of the water and of the Spirit. So don't stop now. Don't give up now. Don't backslide now. This is the greatest hour of the church. We are going to see the greatest revival that has ever hit this world. We are going to see it in our day. Oh, if you believe that right now, get out of your pews and just come down to the front with your hands lifted up. Say, Lord, I bless this church. I bless me. I bless my family. God, I forgive those that have wronged me. I'm releasing it right now. Take out anything in me that's not of you, God. In the name of Jesus right now.
favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children may its favor be upon you. 